Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, posted on June 15th, 2010. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast... A neutrino, like the neutrinos coming through your body from the sun, can go through, on average, 10,000 light-years of lead before interacting once. That's theoretical physicist Lawrence Krauss, director of the Origins Initiative at Arizona State University. We'll talk to him about neutrinos, and we'll hear about the reopening of the Institute and Museum of the History of Science in Florence, Italy, now known as the Museo Galileo. First up, Lawrence Krauss, who is also a columnist for Scientific American. We were both at the World Science Festival in New York City last week. His column in the June issue deals with neutrinos, so we talked about that and some other physics-y things. Why do you love neutrinos so much? Because they're the most interesting particles in nature. They're everything you'd want. They, they're elusive and mysterious. We don't know much about them. And 6,000 billion of them are going through your body every second. I mean, you know, how much more exciting can that be? Can you give us the, the real quick explanation of what neutrinos are for people who don't know? Absolutely. Neutrinos are uh, elementary particles that are the lightest elementary particles we know of. Uh, they, are, in fact, were invented or discovered because we, that we, when particles like neutrons decay, there was missing energy. And these particles were proposed that the energy had to go somewhere. And, when, in fact, the name comes from the fact that they had to be neutral because we couldn't see them in detectors, but they had to be light. So Enrico Fermi called them a little neutron. In Italian, is little is neutrino. So they were baby neutrons, which are the only other neutral particles at the time that were known. But it turns out that they are unique in nature in only interacting via a, a single force in nature called the weak force. And the weak force is weak. So a neutrino, like the neutrinos coming through your body from the sun, can go through, on average, 10,000 light years of lead before interacting once. Now you, let's let's just try to bring that down to earth to people. If you had a block of lead mm-hmm. the size of the entire Earth, and you went across the diameter, that would only be about eight thousand miles. And yeah. you're talking about ten thousand light, light years, years, which is you know somebody else can do the math. But it's, it's a third it's, of the way to the center of the Milky Way galaxy. So that's a lot of Earths lined up in a row. Uh, yeah, a heck of a lot of Earths lined up in a row. There's that's a, a distance that encompasses something like almost a hundred billion stars. I mean, it's amazing. And, and neutrinos go right through it without even knowing it was there. So in the column... And what's amazing, by the way, and what is equally amazing, and one of the reasons I love it so much, is you might think that given that they don't interact at all like this, how do we know they exist? How do, well, maybe they're just inventions of the, our human imagination. We use the laws of probability, which I also love. All those neutrinos are going through the Earth on average without, without knowing it was there. But, but the laws of probability tell us that every now and then one should interact. So if we build a big enough detector and we're patient enough, every now and then we can catch that errant neutrino and interact it. And, in fact, that's what Ray Davis, in a very courageous experiment, did with a, with a 100,000 gallons of cleaning fluid in a deep mine in South Dakota for years. It's amazing the experiment got built, and he later won the Nobel Prize for discovering neutrino. Cause, and this is the neat thing in that experiment. So what he built, a, a, a tank of 100,000 gallons of cleaning fluid, and you could calculate that if these neutrinos are coming from the sun, on average, of the billions and billions of neutrinos that went through the Earth, one each day would hit an atom of chlorine and turn it, the nucleus of that atom, into the nucleus of an atom of argon. So all you had to do was find a single atom of argon and 100,000 gallons of cleaning fluid. Now, when I tell that to an audience, people titter all the time because no one would believe it was possible. It, science fiction writers wouldn't have the guts to talk about it. 
but you can really do it. And that's what's amazing. That, that nevertheless, just amazes me that we can detect neutrinos. And in the, in the column you wrote in the June issue of Scientific American, you talk about some of the ideas that you had a long time ago related to neutrino detection. Why don't you tell us about that and, and what, uh, what eventually happened? Yeah, no, it's really, and that, uh, that's amazing because you, can, you, you think of things, and, and I'm a theoretical physicist. I get paid to imagine a lot. And there are times when I, I, I think of things that should be possible, but I, it's never clear we'll ever really know about it. And, and so, in fact, 25 or 30 years ago, I thought of two processes that would produce neutrinos that were fascinating to me. One, because I got to learn about it. One is the fact that the Earth is actually a source, not of neutrinos, but anti-neutrinos. The radioactivity in the Earth produces anti-neutrinos, which are constantly streaming up. And I actually kind of realized that if we could measure those anti-neutrinos, we could measure the radioactivity in the Earth. One of the things that's kind of fascinating is we don't know how much radioactivity there is in the Earth. In principle, we don't even have proof that the Earth isn't heating up instead of cooling down. Because if there was enough radioactivity, it could heat up the Earth instead of letting the Earth cool down. By measuring those anti-neutrinos, you could know that. But it was so clear that it was such a difficult experiment that, that while I proposed a lot of possibilities, I remember at the time I lectured on this subject, I remember to geophysicists, and a lot of them said, look, when I was going to school, people didn't even believe neutrinos existed, and now you want me to use them to to, to look for the Earth? I mean, people scoffed at it, it was, you know, or at least uh, were amused, but didn't take it seriously, I think. And then, there, then I also thought about the fact that over the history of the life of the universe, neutrinos are not just produced by the sun, but when stars explode this in, in a supernova, the most brilliant fireworks in the universe... As brilliant as those fireworks are, less than 1% of the energy of the star is coming out in light. 99% is coming out in neutrinos. And so neutrinos are being, and when every time a star explodes, there's an incredible burst of neutrinos. We hope to look for that. In fact, we discovered a neutrino burst in 1987 from a star that exploded 150,000 light years away. But if you think about it, all of the stars that have exploded over cosmic history have produced a, a neutrino background that's going throughout the universe. And we, we estimated what it might be at a time, by the way, before 1987, before we'd ever seen a star explode and produce neutrinos. So no one really knew if it happened. So it was theoretical speculation in the extreme. We imagined stars produced neutrinos. We imagined the rate at which stars were, were exploding. And we proposed a rate to detect them. Well, this, the... I was going to say the short version, but this wasn't that short because I've talked for a while, is that 30 years later, there are now experiments that have now detected the anti-neutrinos from the Earth, uh, finally, that I never would have thought were possible. And an experiment that was on the verge of having the sensitivity to detect those that neutrino background from the universe. And at, each time we open up a new window on the universe, we learn something. We're often surprised. And so neutrinos are becoming not just elusive particles, but incredible new windows on processes that happen in the cores of stars and even in the core of our very Earth. And when something like that happens, where you have this one idea and you, you theorize that if this happens, then if A happens, then B will happen, and if C happens, then D will happen, and years later you get both B and D, well, this is a real indication to you that your overall picture of the universe is pretty accurate. Well, yeah, but, it, I mean, it, but it's, it's, it's scary. Is what it really is. It's it, when you're sitting alone in the middle of the night, imagining stuff about how the universe might behave, and then 20 years later you find out the universe really behaves that way. It is. It's scary. It really is. It's sometimes very difficult to believe that that the universe is really behaving like you thought it might. And uh, it's much, perhaps, much more relieving when you find out you're wrong because it just seems so, too weird that somehow 
it all works so well. And and in this case, with neutrinos, it has worked so well. Often, if you're a theoretical physicist, you want to be wrong because you want the universe to be more exciting. In this case, uh, it is really gratifying when when theoretical ideas that are based on, on sound science from one area can be extrapolated and allow us to use use those principles to learn and explore the universe in new ways. It, it really is amazing. And as I say, it, it's it's a little unnerving. Is the unnerving uh, part of it the... the the, the feeling of, why should my little brain be able to figure all this out? It's exactly the case. Why, if you, why should we, our brains be tuned to be able to understand the universe? It, if you're a theoretical physicist, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's very surprising often. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm here in New York, I'm doing some events, and, 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 and I've written about other, many things, obviously, inclu- including extra dimensions most recently, and, and, and You've got to wonder sometimes when you're thinking about something and you find it attractive, is it because the universe is that way or is it because your brain is hardwired to like that? And then you have to wonder, well, if your brain is hardwired to like that, does it have any relation to the universe? And you've got to be very prepared. Too many people like to... This is a big problem, and, and scientists have to get over this problem, and, and so do members of the general public. Just because you like something doesn't mean it's true. And that's probably the most important thing we learn from science. For me, one of the greatest things that science can tell you is to have some idea that you love, that you think is beautiful, profound, and elegant, shown to be wrong, because it opens your mind. Somebody said, we have to hold our theories dearly but gently. Exactly. Or, uh, you know, and I, to make another bit of self-promotion, I just finished a book on Richard Feynman uh, that's coming out, and he said it very well. He said, Physics, science is imagination in a straitjacket. And I think uh, that's really important because the universe is the way it is, whether we like it or not. And that's one of the greatest things about science, as far as I'm concerned. The straitjacket being the, the constraints. You can have a lot of freedom, but it's within those constraints. Within the constraints of reality and experiment. And, you know, and as beautiful as your idea is, if the experiment proves it wrong, you throw it out like yesterday's newspaper. And the Feynman book is called? Quantum Man, Richard Feynman's Life in Science. And that'll be out in early 2011. Yeah, yeah February, March 2011. <laughs> what else are you thinking about? Uh, I've been, lately, I've just been thinking about gravitational waves from the earliest moments of the Big Bang. I just produced a scientific paper about that. And those will be another new wonderful window because they haven't interacted since the universe was perhaps 10 to the minus 30 seconds old. So they may be the newest window that will eventually reveal to us a lot about the early moments and maybe why the Big Bang happened and... And ultimately, as I like to say, help us understand why we're here. So that, dark matter, and a few other things are occupying me. How are we going to find gravity waves? Well, the neat thing is we're building detectors to look for gravity. When a gravity wave comes by, it actually shrinks space momentarily and expands it. And so we actually actually have very careful measuring rods, and we can measure the length of two different measuring rods in different places. It's called an interferometer. And uh, we look for one of them to ch- one length to change relative to the other. It's amazing. We can measure now with the LIGO interferometer, and in, in, there's one in, in Washington State and one down in Louisiana. There are two three-mile-long cavities where we measure the length of those cavities, and we look for we can measure that those le- le- length with an accuracy smaller than the size of a proton. It's amazing. It's amazing what experiment can do. And so uh, that's a, a direct way, but it turns out we can actually indirectly measure gravity waves by looking out uh, at the cosmic microwave background that's come to us from the Big Bang. And imprinted in there, it turns out, for reasons I think I won't talk about here, uh, uh, a signal maybe of the, of the Big Bang. And I've just, in fact, been written about how you might be able to disentangle that signal. 
Well, we'll we'll have to look for that in a longer treatment in the pages of Scientific American. Absolutely. Good idea. I'll have to do that. One of Lawrence Krauss's scientific forefathers is, of course, the great Galileo. On June 11th, the Science Museum in Florence, Italy, reopened with a new name that pays tribute to Galileo. Cynthia Graber, a frequent contributor to the Daily Siam podcast, was recently in Florence and spoke to the museum's director prior to the reopening. I'll let him introduce himself. Paolo Galluzzi, director of the Institute and Museum of the History of Science, who is going to become the Museo Galileo so very soon. And um, why the switch from the Institute of Science to the Museo? Well, it's a, it's a new phase of the history of this institution. It's a huge rearrangement of the collection, restructuring of the building. And so we make a full point and we start a new phase of our history and in the name of Galileo, in the wake of Galileo. And, um, and so what are some of the new, what's going to be going on in the new museum and the new exhibits? Well, we'll be totally renewed. We'll be new rooms, new uh, plants, new systems of communication. We're using, exploiting a lot of uh, information technology in, in favor of understanding on the part of the visitors, new graphics, new concept. So everything will be fairly new. Um, I read something about... Galileo's fingers? What is that? Yeah, we, we already have one finger of Galileo was taken from his body or remains of his body in 1737 when the uh, corpse of Galileo was moved from the original burial to the monumental sepulchre in Santa Croce. And now and we knew that in the same, on the same occasion, other two fingers and one tooth were taken from, from the remains but we had lost traces of these other documents and luckily recently has been offered at an auction uh, not knowing what was about and we have we were lucky enough to discover what it was and the person who bought them offered to us and will be displayed for the first time on the opening of the museum in may why would people have stolen parts of his body well, you know what is happening with the with the famous religious man, uh, relics. You have relics of religion and you have relics of science. These are relics of science. And Galileo is a saint of science. And also is a double meaning because he's a saint has been persecuted by other saints. <laughs> so it's quite a value. How, how are things like that? How were they preserved? <laughs> They were preserved in a, in a container, glass container, to, uh, as a trophy, and they were possibly intended as as an homage to the memory of this great man who was uh, fighting in favor of reason against superstition. What are some other things that visitors to the <clears throat> exhibit should be looking out for that you, you're very excited about? Well, we are excited because the collection we have the privilege to preserve is certainly the most important collection in, in, as far as instruments of ancient mathematical science and physics are about around the world. So that is very exciting itself. The second fact, the very beautiful objects, 
Third, we are uh, you offering visitors an interactive way of in of, of communicating with our objects through uh, IT uh, very small objects that will be in their hands and will uh, tune them directly with the objects on display, and they will be able to put questions and to ask about how they're working, having animations of the working, reconstruction of the context, historical information about the moment in which we are discovered, the makers by biographies and many other things. So it will be a totally different way of approaching visitors and will make a non-interactive museum because host original objects into an interactive knowledge exchange. And we have organized in the ground floor and in the basement exhibitions. At the moment, currently, we have an exhibition on the late phase of the Medi of the Lorena uh, Great Duchy of Tuscany domain, and this is about physics and mathematics in the end of 18th century and first half of 19th century, and this is an interactive exhibition on historical objects. Is there something else I haven't asked that you would want Americans interested in science to know about who might come to Florence? Well, I mean, you, when when Americans come to Florence, they I'm, I know that Americans love Galileo and consider Galileo as a great man in the history as is correct to do, of course. And next time, pay a visit to the Galileo Museum. It's just a side nearby the Uffizi. You will, you will not miss it. Galuzzi and Cynthia took a close look at one of the museum's prized possessions, a 400-year-old armillary sphere, a pre-Copernican model of the universe. Uh, that was completed in, in at the end of the 16th century, in the 90s. And under the the Ferdinand I, the great Duke Medici, great Duke of Tuscany, by a person whose name was Antonio Santucci, I was a colleague of Galileo in, in Pisa, at the University of Pisa, but was a Ptolemy follower, not, was not a Copernican. And this is a Ptolemy representation, Ptolemaic representation of the universe. But is what is impressive is the structure of these. You see all the pieces. It's going to be three meters I and that will be pretty spectacular. You were looking for something to stress that should be seen when the museum is reopened. This will be a very fantastic. It's a combination, of course, of art and science. <laughs> so the Ptolemaic as opposed to the Copernican means, what is that? Which is geocentric, Ptolemy, and heliocentric, Copernicus. Mm. So okay. this is the, as you see here, the hurt is in the central position. All the rings, armille, are going around and are circular, although you have some uh, connection. And this is lots of paintings also. What is the painting of here? Leo's optical sign and all these signs. Beautiful. And wow. atop of that, there is a ring. Uh, no, this is not a ring. It's, it's a round circle with God, <laughs> who is looking at the cosmos. <laughs> Embracing the cosmos. And <laughs> so where the, the planets and the sun and that... Sure, you have all the circles of the planets and you have, of course, including the sun that was considered and treated as a planet and you have all the major uh, astronomical circles, the ecliptic, the... And, and, and this is beautiful, it's a spectacular object. When you will see it on installed here, you see from here, it will be breathtaking. So it'll be going up towards yeah. the roof. Wow. Yeah, that high. That's amazing. Quante tre metri e quattro metri.
three and a half meters high. Wow. It's a beautiful, wow. uh, even uh, even that all decorated and gold. And beautifully preserved. No, no it's, it's been restored. restored. That's what I was That wondering. is coming now from restri- after restoration. It's never been touched after the 1590 yeah. <laughs> when it was finished. And now we have dismounted quite an endeavor. And then we will reinstall it <laughs> and has been fully restored. How long does it take to restore something? Uh, a couple of years. And I imagine that takes a lot of science in itself to know how to yeah, restore yeah. it. You have to reinstall according to the coordinates and respecting. Well, but the, uh, installing it will be easier than dismounting it, I guess, no? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they think so. <laughs> because it <laughs> has been manipulated in the past. But <laughs> but uh, manipulation means that they did the position did not correspond anymore to the project. So has been made a study to understand how it should have been arranged and then has been dismounted and now will be... Pieces here uh, were leftovers. We had a yeah. box of leftovers. Yeah. <laughs> because so, there were so, things that weren't that had been added. Discharged. Yeah, <laughs> they, they didn't know, so they had, they were now has been reconstructed correctly. <laughs> so it's been a scientific project before going to restoration, and, and now we have replaced the original design of the 1590. Was uh, given to the Medici. Was displayed in the Uffizi. In the Uffizi. And then was moved. We have found that here, but but we didn't know it came. Was dismounted and not correctly dismounted because there were leftovers. So, <laughs> so how did you figure out what was correct then, if it hadn't been correct? Well, there is. A, by by the way, we know from from the fact that these kind of instruments were pretty common in the period. Second, we have a precise design by the author of how it should be. So it was in a sense easy. <laughs> to Price go back. design. You have. You mean there there are images Engravings. that are. Engravings. Uh, there is a detailed engraving by the author himself of was printed just because only a few people could see the original. So he wanted to double, vulg, make it more popular through engraving. So you said that it told us something about what the world, what we knew about the world in the 16th century, too. Yeah, so. was that his uh, older view of the universe? That is a Ptolemy geocentric. Universe and is a representation very spectacular of these uh, visual appearance of this old cosmology, um, and was an object, of course, for the Medici to display, producing surprise and, and emotion in, in their guests. For more on the Museo Galileo and to see images of the armillary sphere, go to www.museogalileo.it. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, but only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, being superstitious can affect your performance on a task. Story two, in England and Wales, professional drivers were found to be five times as likely as other people to get Legionnaire's disease. Story three, chimpanzees who lose a tussle with another member of the tribe are shunned by their comrades for hours following the fight. And story four, Lindsay Lohan's bail was doubled when she was found to be in probation violation. She was turned in by her ankle monitor, which revealed that she had consumed alcohol. And time's up. Story one is true. Being superstitious apparently can alter your performance. 
Researchers did a few different tests, but one in particular illustrates the self-fulfilling effect. Subjects who had lucky charms set higher goals for themselves than those who didn't have their charms available, and worked harder and longer on a given problem. The research appeared in the journal Psychological Science. Story two is true. English and Welsh drivers were found to be at five times the risk of Legionnaires' disease, according to Great Britain's Health Protection Agency. And the culprit was windshield wiper water. Warm, still water is a great place for the Legionella bacteria to grow, and wiping the window sends out a spray of water, some of which occasionally reach the lungs of drivers. Adding wiper cleaning fluid to the mix seemed to wipe out the bug. And story four is true. Lohan's ankle monitor can and did detect alcohol. It's called a scram for secure, continuous remote alcohol monitor, and it measures alcohol in the sweat that it samples. As for this particular case, somebody said that fame is such a powerful intoxicant that Lindsay Lohan gave up being a movie star for it. All of which means that story three about the shunning of chimpanzees who lose fights is totally bogus. Because a study done by researchers at the Yerkes National Primate Research Center finds that the losers in aggressive interactions were often consoled by bystanders. However, the chances that a loser would be consoled increased with the loser's overall ranking in the group's social standing. For more, check out the story on our website titled "Simian Solicitude: Like Humans, Chimpanzees Console Victims of Aggression." That's it for this episode. Get your science news at www.scientificamerican.com, where you can check out the in-depth report "Urban Visions: The Future of Cities" and our slideshow, "The Top Ten Dogs of Science." Follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet every time a new article hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam, S C I A M. For Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. 